So I have a question for you, Jeff. Oh, fuck. For Jeff? All right. Jeff the chef. I feel left out. Good. I guess I have a question for you as well, Jesse. It would just be from a different angle. All right. So no, no, it's fine. Hear... It's fine. Okay. All right. Cool. I kind of wanted my personal question, but like whatever. All right. All right. For Jeff, you often hear people ask chefs like if they had three ingredients to cook with oh, for the rest of their life, what would they be? Because uh-huh. Jeff and I were having a conversation before about poultry and about how he said it's kind of boring to cook with. And then for Jesse, I guess three things that you would eat for the rest of your life. I don't know how much of a cook you are, if if you want to be in on the question. Jesse's got let's, some skills. Let's let Jeff handle this. <laughs> <laughs> three things, I mean, God, what what has this podcast become? Is, that, is it just for taste, or is it like, because you'd have to take nutrition into account, right? So you'd have to pretty much base it on that. You'd basically have to have well, three superfoods that would give you everything you need, everything a body needs. See, but if I was in this situation at all, <clears throat> I'd want to die soon anyway. So I would just pick the three things that would be the most enjoyable to eat until I die. It's like, give me sour Skittles, Cheese Whiz, and Dunkin' <laughs> nah, Donuts. Nah, because like, that would be cool for like an hour. And then, yeah, like, like, and then uh, you'd be anyone, not, including not even more so my diabetic ass, but anyone <clears throat> would be sick. Can it be three like different foods or is it just three ingredients? Like can you have cheeseburgers, double cheeseburgers and curly fries? Does that count or what? I mean from your from your side, the eating part of it, I'll give you like the whole assembled meal. But as far okay. as the chef aspect goes, ingredients. Um ingredients, I mean Okay, don't th- oh don't overthink this, Jeff. Just say what say what comes to heart. Probably <laughs> Uh, probably potatoes because they can okay. be cooked a thousand ways. Okay. Um, I wouldn't bring anything perishable. Uh, chicken or chickens yeah. for yeah. the. I mean chickens. My poultry. Yeah, yeah, Makes yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> because you got eggs there too. You know. Okay. Yeah, and and then. Um, Ooh. Uh, eggs shit. are. The most common answer I hear, honestly, yeah. from most shows. Well, I mean, yeah, if you can eat them once. I, see, I, I'm not a huge egg fan. I mean, I like them. I hate cooking with them because you have to, like, it's like a whole chemistry shit to cook with eggs properly. Um, well, that's what I mean. Uh, they can be made into, like, sweet, like, dessert pastries. They can yeah, be made salt. into savory dishes. Like, you can just use them as a lot of different things, I Yeah, feel potatoes, like... like Three chickens and a rooster, if I could, if I could swing that in this stretched <laughs> scenario. <laughs> or like a chicken and a rooster, fine. I'll just have a bunch of inbred chickens. I won't last very long, whatever. And uh, yeah, so like a chicken and a rooster, potatoes and salt. That would probably be Okay, no, no, choices. I was about to say, I was about to say, let's leave the spices as you can have all of those. Oh, okay. Because that's kind of well, unfair, that changes, right? Like, that changes everything. I mean, all right. Uh Welcome to our movie podcast. I'm yeah, not going to give know. you potatoes and not let you be able to like season it with some type of herb or know, spice man. or like garlic. I honestly have never thought of this. Uh, flour. There. Perfect. Okay, there's a big one. I can Good. make I can make hardtack. There. Yeah. Fine. Boom. Okay. Boom. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Jesse this hated like a, every this minute like a of that segment from Wiener Dog Joe or something. <laughs> I felt that the whole time. I was like, "How oh, this feels like uh, this like, is I, a conversation I'm, that me and Skyler would have on Wiener Dog Joe." For I'm, sure. I'm trying to think of like I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like I was waiting for Alex to be like, "Those are the choices." Like he had some kind of like thing up oh, on, on the internet. <clears throat> no, just like some kind of thing up on the internet where it was like, if you choose these type of three ingredients, like you're autistic. Like I don't know. I didn't. I don't know what. Oh yeah. I was yeah. You thought he a, was uh, leading toward a punchline? Yeah, of some or just like some kind of like diagnosis of my psyche or something. Like he found some weird website that you like put in three ingredients and then it tells you like if you're gonna go like shoot up a school. <laughs> oh, I did. I was doing a uh, BuzzFeed personality test for the Royal Tenenbaums, and you are Dudley Heinzbergen. <laughs> Dude, that's perfect because I. 
thought that Dudley yes. perfectly represented the audience uh. in this movie. <laughs> oh my god, that's right. Welcome back to the Real Weirdos. Believe it or not, we're a movie podcast. Uh, two and a half white guys talk about movies for way too goddamn long. Today, we're talking about the Royal Tenenbaums, 2001 film from Wes Anderson. And starring pretty much fucking everybody, <laughs> as happens in his yep. films. And uh, this is an Alex choice. So, Alex, do you want to describe briefly the Royal Tenenbaums and say why you chose it for the show? Yeah, so it's about a father of a basically aging, like, dynastic kind of family that was really famous and really, like, had a lot of potential when they were young. And he has three children and he's like fallen out with the family split up from the wife. And it's about his crazy ploy to get back into their life seemingly in a sentimental way or in a way to kind of like con them because he's getting kicked out of his residence. And that's basically the summary of the movie. And I chose it because I think it's actually the tightest of all of Wes Anderson's films. Is it your favorite Wes Anderson It movie? is. It is also my favorite one. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the other ones, uh, there are other films that like I like just as much. It's really hard for me to pick a favorite Wes Anderson film out of a few that he's done. Because he's done a few that I think are just really, really solid. But I think this is like the, through the passing of time, I think this one will be looked at back the most fondly. Well, you, we were talking before we started recording, and you've seen this legitimately like 50 times, you said. Yes, yes. Like not not hyperbolic. Yep. Which is insane. I know, it is. That's crazy. I don't know <laughs> if I've seen anything that much. Maybe Space Jam when I was a tiny child and just had the VHS tape. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, I was trying to think in, in, in preparation for this, what was the first Wes Anderson I'd seen I think it was probably Life Aquatic in high school. Mm -hmm. I think uh, that was around that time where I would have been introduced to it. And I had actually not seen The Royal Tenenbaums. I've seen every Wes Anderson movie after that, except for the brand new one. Okay. Um, and I've loved all of them. My favorites, I think it might be a three-way tie between Life Aquatic. I fucking love Darjeeling Limited. I don't know what it is about that movie that tickles me, that brother dynamic perhaps. Oh, it's so um, good. And then Grand Budapest is wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, I think Royal Tenenbaums might be my least favorite. Okay. But I did watch it twice, and I really, really enjoyed it. Got it. So that says a lot for Wes Anderson um, in terms of what I think of him and his ability. It's funny, though, right? Like, we've gone from shitting on Stargate to <laughs> propping up Wes Anderson. So if you haven't clicked the X out of your browser, please do so now. Um, Jeff. Yeah. Do you, what's uh what's your deal with Wes Anderson? I haven't seen any of his films before. This is my first oh, Wes wow. Anderson movie. I haven't seen any of. I'm going through his. I'm looking through his IMDb right now. Like I've heard of a bunch, like Darjeeling Limited, Grand Budapest Hotel. Like you know, Holy these shit. movies are very famous, and I've definitely heard of them. Life Aquatic. Yep, I've heard of a lot of these movies, but nope, just never really seen any. So this is my first Wes Anderson movie I've ever seen. Whoa. I didn't wow. know that. That's we a didn't know moment that. for the podcast. I had no idea. I mean, I guess, yeah. I mean, I, I just assumed. Yeah, I, I've heard of him, of course. You know, like definitely familiar with his name, but uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't. I'm not as storied in a wide, diverse array of directors. I don't even know like who directs things until you guys tell <laughs> me. So uh, I just watch movies. Um, well, what did, how did you feel about, like, how was your first Wes Anderson this was, experience then? Uh, I don't know. Like, this movie is really fun. It's really fun. I found it to be, like, quite funny. Like, I thought it was, like, oh, really yeah. hilarious. Movie. It is like, hilarious. In, in a very unintentional way. Mm -hmm. it, it had some really dark moments, which I, I like. Um, uh, I really like the cast. I think I, I did feel like everyone was very much playing a character, a character. I, almost, I mixed up caricature and character. Um, <laughs> caricature. Uh, caricature. But everyone very much felt like a character in a play almost. Like everyone really wore the same thing throughout the entire film. So it's like you kind of, 
get this idea that like that's their costume and their costumes very much say a lot about who they are as a person. So it's a very visual movie, which I, I'm assuming that's kind of Wes Anderson's thing is like hyper mm-hmm. weird. He very much loves the wide angle lens, which is cool. I, mm-hmm. I, 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 I rock with that. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was a fun movie. It was very much a clown car of a movie in, <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Sometimes the pacing would like, it would be really fast and then scene, 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 and then a really long drawn out scene that doesn't really seem to matter. And then we're back to scene, scene, scene. Like, it's just, uh, he very much has a style of his own for sure. And he really, that, really that does. Watching video yes. that you posted in the Discord, Jesse, uh, I, I can see that other people think that as well. Yeah. Uh, the video he's referring to is from Thomas Flight, who has a Wes Anderson video. I recommend it. It's a really good analysis. But um, that's an that's an interesting, some interesting things you brought up there, especially as regards his visual style and the tone of it. I, I came up with a, some terminology when I was watching this one and I call it sincere artifice because it's like, with a lot of directors, they're kind of blurred into the background. There's not a super strong authorial voice, at least in terms of like, how do I say this? Um, you're not always aware that there's a director mm-hmm. in a lot of movies. That like mm-hmm. They're like very much realist, whereas Wes Anderson is in his own little corner during fucking cubism or something. And you're always aware that there's a, a director behind the camera. And he almost seems like, to me, like somebody playing with action figures telling these little stories like the the worlds are that he builds are very artificial magical fairy magical yeah you want to jump in here alex yeah so i like what you're saying is perfect because i have it written down in my notes that with wes anderson i can like walk by a living room where someone's watching a movie and i could see a frame of a film and it could be any director. It could be Nolan. It could be, you know, Scorsese, Coppola, anyone, Spielberg. Who knows? But when I walk by a room, I literally would only need half of a second glimpse to know that it was a Wes Anderson film. Just one frame, even. Because mm. his films are constructed almost like paintings, like frame by frame by frame. And then it's like a diorama almost. And then the characters move within them like a dollhouse almost. Yes, exactly. There's like a weird effect that he has. Um, And that lends to, I think, Jeff's point of characters feeling very character-y. You know, it's (laughs) like they have their little outfits and their little get-ups and whatnot. Um, It's like characters in a storybook and Wes Anderson is like reading you this weird story it's almost like a children's story in tone mm-hmm. but then it gets really dark and you're like this is not for children like when you see luke wilson with his wrist slit you're like and in glorious detail you're like this yeah. is not really for kids it takes a much darker turn than you would expect but yeah it is like a it is like a weird dollhouse for sure that's his classic telltale sign too that's definitely a, a really strong way to put like the feeling I was having when I was watching this film because I didn't know if that was intentional and that kind of gives it more context because I was like, wow, these characters are very much metaphors. They're all kind of walking metaphors for what what the film is trying to say, you know? I mean, I say that with like very heavy air well, quotes. Because, yeah, what do you mean? Well, I, the film is definitely about like fractured families and the effects that that takes on the next generation and how it kind of like all these these kids of royal have kind of manifested their depression and their crappy childhoods in in a very unique way and and without having to tell you that Wes Anderson instead is able to kind of show you it via the way he paints his characters like i like taking i, like, I very much like um Gwyneth Paltrow's character as Margot because she's very much a great representation like she keeps her hair the same as when she was a child she wears that little like um beret in her hair which is like very much something like a child would wear it's like a little pink beret that like no adult woman who's like a playwright would wear that that's way too immature yes so she kind of still they all still wear bits of their immaturity on them as kind of 
um, symbols of like the the loads that they're still carrying from their shitty childhoods. Like um, Richie still has his tennis headband, and <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, um, uh, I always forget his name. Chaz. 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 He's like always in his track suit. You know, whereas originally he was always in this business suit. So for him, it's like this attempt to break away from his dad and the things that he emulated in his father. And it's very unclear, at least to me during the first watch, of like why they're rich. Like they're just rich. Like, and it's fine because that's just the story and the setting. Royal was a big time corporate like lawyer. Oh, that's right. He was a lawyer. Okay, that's right. Yeah. So that makes more sense now because I was like, it's very unclear about like what makes this family have high status. Like I do remember it saying he was a lawyer and he got disbarred. It was very quick. And then um, she was a, Ethel was an archaeologist, I believe. Yeah. Or anthropologist. Well, we don't know how much that probably doesn't make much money. Yeah, but she was like a she was supposed to be like a well-renowned one, I guess, you know? Yeah. And like a lot of the characters in the film this is kind of like dovetailing into another point I have, but a lot of the characters in the film have like books, right? There are shots that show like, oh, this person wrote this. She wrote about her children and they're like Mm -hmm. prodigious genius and stuff like that. Um, Bill Murray's characters, like, you know, that like famous world famous, like psychoanalyst of weird people and whatnot. Um, So I was going to say that everything is so literary this film is so literary like when people talk about oh film can also be literature you know you everyone understands that connection right it's obviously literature because there's screenplays and things like that it just then comes to life again in another medium on film whereas this film almost like it is so literary if you were to write a book report about like the royal tenenbaums you could do it you know because you're like Everyone wears certain clothing that's metaphorical to them. Each character is like a metaphor. It's like the perfect junior high school book report movie. And I don't mean that in like a bad way. I just, I think it's so well disassembled into stock literary characters without it being too, too bland, if that makes sense. It is, but at the same time, it's almost like, all of that you said told by a narrator who's coming off peyote. Well, it is Alec yeah, Baldwin. That's the best so. part. <laughs> it is Alec Baldwin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Alec Baldwin. Uh, did, who was the narrator in Jesse James? Cause either that narrator oh, was remember. doing this an Alec Baldwin. Like, I almost thought that it was the same narrator. It was crazy. I was like, is that the narrator from Assassination of Jesse James? <laughs> Which it easily could have been. You know, Alec Baldwin, I think, has done a few narrations. But I don't know. That, that was just taking me out of the movie sometimes. Because his, like, really, like, somber, like... Yeah. It, like, uh, narration would come in with the gravelly voice. It's funny because it is a novel, right? The book is... Or the movie is a novel. Like, he go, it goes through different chapters... And yeah, it, it's presented as in novel form. Each different scene, if you look at the actual writing, it's like exactly what the narrator says each time. And it's in chapters. Yeah, and then it ends. You know, they, they close it. There's the little library stamp. Um, the guy who does Napoleon Dynamite and Nacho Libre, it might seem what like... What do you mean does? Uh, the guy who directs directed them, it? Excuse me. Okay. Um, I think his name is John Heater. Or something or header no idea anyways yeah. header that sounds right he, yeah he, he uses some of the like same similar uh over the top shots of like certain inanimate objects that are extremely colorful and then characters will like interact with them but it is very theatrical and it's like almost like a play it is it's like a play it's funny jeff uh, it's interesting for me hearing jeff describe it because for me, having seen where Wes Anderson goes with his career, this is like just the start mm-hmm. of his over stylization. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it it gets it gets so much more storybooky and and unique and quirky, and it goes into like a lot of people don't like Wes Anderson, mm-hmm. and I get it. I get that it's a style that can irk some people, and I think other other directors that try to do like you know quirky indie style really irritate me but Wes doesn't um I think it's because he's just in such total command of everything like we talk about we've talked about how like David Fincher 
is so meticulous and in command of every everything that's going on in the frame. Mm-hmm. Wes Anderson is no less. It's just a completely different tone. Yeah. And this is like the burgeoning of that tone after Bottle Rocket and Rushmore and stuff like that. The tone and the style. There are only a few directors who I feel like get a pass when it comes to constantly reproducing their style. I mean, look at Guy Ritchie even. He suffered like pretty dramatically compared to Lockstock, Snatch, those movies he had at the beginning. And he was like, he had to like kind of veer away from his style, didn't find a lot of success in that, and then kind of come back into his shell. Whereas there are directors like Quentin Tarantino who are not getting knocked for their style of, they're not repetitive, right? But it's like, you go to watch a Tarantino movie, you're going to expect some of the same film elements. And you go to a Nolan movie, you'll be able to spot some of the same ones. Tarantino is a great comparison because he infuses his movies with himself to such a high degree. You're like, these movies are Tarantino in in a large sense. We've talked about that before. There are some other directors, but Tarantino definitely comes to mind. Wes Anderson is certainly a, a vanguard of that. Like the the best description I could summon, like when I was watching it this time, I pictured all these other directors. I sort of said this earlier, like just painting realism. They're like out in a field painting realism. <laughs> and then Wes Anderson is just off to the side making just abstract weirdness. Yeah. And it's just so him. And it's so well done that even if you don't like the stories that he's being presented and you don't like the tone, if you're aware of filmmaking as an art form at all, it's impossible to deny that he is a master of what he's doing. And what he's doing is super unique. Yeah. In a way that nobody's done it before. Like the hyper stylization of like Fellini, there's a little bit of that where, where unreality seeps into reality. Well, you're aware that it's a very constructed reality. That's why I love that we both went to the the idea that this is a dollhouse <laughs> and he's this like whimsical fucking Charlie and the Chocolate Factory character moving around these action figures. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I, I wondered when I was watching this, I was like, does Wes Anderson have genuine love for these characters or does he just like to see them suffer? And are they mutually exclusive? Can it be both? Ooh, that's a good question that I have lots of feelings about, but I'm going to let Jeff answer it first. Well, when I was reading about this movie, apparently, and you guys probably already know this, but like it kind of came about because Owen Wilson had originally asked, like suggested that Wes Anderson write a film about his family and his growing up. Mm-hmm. And and he kind of began to do that and then veered very hard right in his kind of typical way, I guess. If I mean, I don't really know, but you know, it's just so that's was kind of the inspiration for this movie. Now, obviously, this has nothing to do with his actual family at the stage that it is now. It's a very fictional universe, but but yeah, that was the inspiration for the film. So, I mean, I think that, yeah, I think he does love these characters, but he doesn't. He tells a real story. Like the story, it's almost like Owen Wilson's character in this movie, Eli Cash, how he like kind of seems to be like veering in and out of reality throughout the whole movie because he's just so high. <laughs> that mess. And so it's like it's Ugh. this movie has moments of clarity where it, where like the 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 this, the 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 doll the dollhouse front is taken off and you see all the rooms if I can make continue the metaphor oh definitely you know I mean like you can like the suicide scene is obviously the best representation of that but I really think that like Dudley's character is kind of a dark take on like I don't know I his character was very underdeveloped but felt like he had a bigger role in the film if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. he very much felt like the outside observer but he's the one who's weird my favorite Dudley moment is when this like the worst taxi ever pulls up to get to bring Gwyneth Paltrow away (laughs) and it's like it's like the it makes no sense as a taxi (laughs) it's the worst looking car I've ever seen completely covered in rust one of the windows (laughs) is just cardboard and Dudley's like yeah hey there's a dent in that car 
He's like my favorite. And I'm not joking when I say like Dudley's my favorite character in the movie. My like, favorite scene with him is definitely when Bill Murray's taking his audio notes. Yeah. And he's like, you know, he's colorblind, has an acute sense of hearing, goes over. And then from like five rooms down, Dudley's like, I'm not colorblind, am I? And there's, you're like, it's weird because Wes Anderson always does that in this film. He sets up little lines like that, like acute sense of hearing, colorblind. He just jumps over it and then he'll show you like two seconds later, Dudley's like hearing it from all the way down the room. But he's just really upset that he's colorblind. You know, the comedy in this movie, it's not like jokes, right? It's not a movie that relies on jokes almost at all. It's all about just these characters are so well drawn. And the world that they inhabit is like so goofy in mm-hmm. like a weird way that them just like interacting with it is funny. So, naturally, oh yeah. And interacting it's all with incidental each comedy. Incidental yeah whatever that word is yeah. uh, it, it, it like royal and pagoda's relationship it was amazing like, yeah me cracking up the whole time like the little scene when they obviously like they talk about how he like stabs him and then he stabs him again <laughs> later in the movie like i was cracking up when he stabbed him again and then they just like get in the car and he's like patching him up in the hotel like it was so that there was just such perfect comedic timing I think the biggest laugh for me was when Owen Wilson is on Mex- on mescaline in his house full of pornography and like weird paintings. And I don't know, something about that. Oh, that and the deadpan way that he said he's on mescaline. I was just laughing. And I was like, what are these fucking paintings? Where did Wes Anderson find these paintings? Did you just say you're on mescaline? I did. I did indeed. Yeah. Very much so. <laughs> It's like the best response. <laughs> it's um, so good. But Wildcats. Oh, that that scene is fucking hilarious too. I mean, every single one of Eli Cash's lines are like uh, you know, like everyone knows that Custer died at the Battle of Little Bighorn. What my books predisposes is maybe he didn't. And then like everyone just eats it up and you're just like, What the fuck is this guy? But to go to your question, Jesse, I think that if it was like intentional jokey, it would show that there was a real callous feeling from Wes Anderson towards his characters. Like they were just there to like further a joke. And that isn't what they're there for. They're very heartfelt. And I want to say that I watch this film a lot, but even as like as I get older, the story becomes more to me all about Royal. And Gene Hackman, I just want to say, I, he carries this movie as much as you can carry a movie in a Wes Anderson film because there's just a whole other cadre of stars with you. But yeah. he is just so dynamic and so real and a force in this film. And I think that his acting and his performance really anchors the movie into one that is it's really about this guy. It's like this character study about Royal and about how he is a shitty person. And you get that vibe from him right off the bat. You know, you can almost like smell him like the way he like just carries himself. He's just a con man almost. And he cons his way into the family. And then you realize that halfway through the film, and it's very apparent the film realizes itself that it's a very poignant story now about this father who was like actually trying to reconnect with his children, but he's been such Mm -hmm. a con man for his entire life that he couldn't even come up and just say that he had to build this entire elaborate scheme. He couldn't say, I got kicked out of my hotel. I miss you guys. And I'm like, really sorry for all of this. Like maybe we could talk about working something out. No, he had to go on this crazy fantastical journey to do it and that's what the film is built around in my opinion imagine giving this premise to any other director and how it would not be funny yeah because it's just like (laughs) it's like a psychological portrait of broken people yeah and like they're all just swirling around the nexus that is the the patriarch of this family who left them yeah and like the kids are all dealing with the psychological trauma of like having been left by their father and Owen Wilson is off the rails. He like kills a dog. He runs over the family dog, mm-hmm. and it's all really <laughs> funny. <laughs> I know it's it's interesting. Yeah, they 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 highlight all these characters in a way that 
it's almost like always sunny in the, in the sense that you can take a character and make them such a hyperbole of a human being that when <laughs> yeah. bad things happen to them, you don't feel as bad because you're like, well, this kind of human doesn't exist. Uh-huh. And it, this is not quite to that degree, but it has a kind of a sense of that. And another, I got a very like arrested development vibes off of this, the tone oh, of the family. Definitely. And so there's a lot of inspiration we see from like other types of medium that has definitely come from this movie. Like this movie, you can tell has had an impact and and I love Danny Glover personally in Do this you? film. I think Oh, he's I, I mean, think Henry's awesome. Yeah. It was nice to see him. I couldn't remember the last time I saw him in anything. Um Lethal Weapon. I haven't seen that in fifteen years. Um but yeah, I mean, you know, he doesn't play this huge role. He's he's not acting his ass off or anything like that, but he kind of plays the straight man mm-hmm. and and you always kind of need that in this type of context like shows like always sunny don't have a straight man and that's why it's able to get to the insanity that it can get whereas in, in this you always kind of have that the henry sherman is like kind of grounding everybody's like he's the one that figures out royal's scheme because he's the only one actually paying attention he's the only one that's actually thinking like oh and then like when it says that you know everyone's like gathered around his table and there's tic tacs and the cancer medication and <laughs> all this kind of comedic stuff is happening and he's like oh well i know stomach cancer because my wife died of it yeah and you're, like, you're just like it's like oh shit boom hard breaks <laughs> yeah. and it, but it works it's not in like a bad way it's like and that's such a testament to the directing style because you it's very hard and writing as well i mean wes anderson and owen wilson wrote this movie and like like that you're able to kind of slam the brakes on the comedic effect going on and then pick it right back up again once once that dust has settled it kind of struck it hit the nerve it needed to and then it took a step back and continued on i think the movie is chock full of those moments honestly i mean they pick up towards the end after our little you know bathroom ritual (laughs) the little haircut that richie gives himself but it there are moments at the beginning of the film too that like are extremely soft and delicate that come out of nowhere. It's like a freight train delivering you like cotton candy emotions, right? And you're like, what the <laughs> fuck is happening right now? Um, well, for the, the the large amount of irreality that this is, is very much a heightened like storybook reality. The characters are very like they really get under your skin. They feel like real people, and you feel bad for them. Yeah, it's almost like it does like the it like works by the same mechanism as it's always sunny, just in the total opposite like direction, right? It's yeah, like, it's trying to humanize instead of dehumanize. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. There you go. Um, and it's and so yeah, I feel like there's a moment in the film where going back to Henry Sherman, where there's a little bit of friction between him and Chaz. You know, they don't like Chaz. Well, there's friction between Chaz and everyone because Chaz is an yeah. uptight like paranoid freak because of certain trauma that he's accrued throughout his life, you know, but at the wedding after what's his face, uh, Eli crashes into everything, you know, they're talking and Henry Sherman's talking about how he's like a, a widower and Chaz is like, seems to like, he, he comes into the room and he's like, Oh, like I, I I'm a, I'm a widower too. And yeah. Sherman goes, you know, I know you are Chazzy and like puts his hand on his shoulder. And like, there are little moments like that that are just like so cutting, but I think that they define both characters so well. And it like makes sense that both characters would like react that way, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Little realistic touches of like simple human warmth. Yeah, exactly. Well, this movie is about trauma. Like, at least in my opinion, like this, like the, when I see this movie, this movie is a clear, like magnifying glass on trauma, like childhood trauma and how it, it moves on to adult trauma. And to me, it's as clear as day. Like, that's the idea that I think Wes Anderson was going for when writing this is like we, we can and we can impact our, our traumas onto our children Hence, you know, um, Chaz's children kind of acting a lot like him and being very high strung. And Chaz has had double trauma because he's had, he's lost his father and his wife. And so he feels like truly alone Mm -hmm. in the world. 
and it only has his kids and so he can't ever possibly think of losing them too and so there's very much like this very real human element of of feeling alone and feeling abandoned by your family and that instead of trying to make that into like a moody heartfelt type movie Wes Anderson then takes that and then inserts that into these hyper colorful kind of fantasy like characters and is able to perfectly balance the comedy and the drama and it it, it just works no yeah I think that uh too that Ben Stiller um he doesn't like act too much out of his range. Like it is Ben Stiller, right? He he's like acting kind of like Ben Stiller, the same mannerisms and quirks, but yeah. it isn't bad. It it doesn't. I don't see him in this film, and I don't think he was miscast. Honestly, I don't see him and think like, oh, you know what? Like, I'm getting too much like Zoolander vibes. I'm getting too much blockbuster comedy vibes from. No, him. it didn't go over the top. Yeah. It didn't go over the top. Everyone was, is pretty well cast. Yeah, it's just a little off. He he doesn't quite fit with, I think, a theme that Gwyneth Paltrow and Luke Wilson were trying to go with, where they're both kind of despondent and removed. And I think that's, you know, due to the fact that they're so alike, but also in love with each other. Uh-huh. But, like, you know, they both talk in a very, like, monotone, removed, quiet way. And then, and then Chab and Stiller is like very animated and like very Ben Stillery, and uh, and I, that's the that's the only part of the movie where I kind of felt like he didn't fit. Like I, if he was like a flat toned businessman, like because they kind of set him up that way as a kid, I would have to be kind of would have completed the trifecta of the children. Is <laughs> like they all kind of became these despondent, super removed like human beings because they had no love in their life. I think that would make more sense. I think it's better that they're very. Because I think it's it's wrong to say ne- that they didn't have any love in their life. I think they just had it all to varying degrees. Like, for instance, you know, the idea that your parents are able to provide such a stable environment that you can, like, start running a business at that age for Chaz is interesting. But then your dad is, like, stealing from you on the side. So it brings up this, like, dynamic <laughs> where you're just like... Well, this man who raised me is also like stealing from me, you know, so you have that father son dynamic with them. But then you have this thing where Richie gets to go out with the dad because he's like the athletically talented one. Right. So he gets to go to the dog fights. He gets to like go around the city with dad and have fun. And when he comes home, they're all like sad and mopey up in the window, you know, just like we didn't get to go. Yeah. So you have that brother hatred, too. And yeah. then, of course, the hilarious, which I think is just beautiful. Uh, this is my adopted daughter. You know, I love how he just introduces her every single time as adopted. He has to say yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love the... There are so many little incidental details that I missed the first time. Because there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And it's in a visual way in this movie and other ways. But how he takes Richie to the dogfights. And then he takes um, Chaz's kids to the dogfights later. Yeah. I like I didn't see that connection the first time. I think cuz at first like when the movie starts you're just so keyed up in the momentum of things. But you you were touching on some relationships th- there that lead me to some shots in this movie that I love. I have a list of shots. One of them is Luke Wilson and uh Gwyneth Paltrow on the couch and they're listening to Gene Hackman and this is fairly fairly early on in the story. And there, it's like this wide shot of them. It shows the whole couch. It's a long couch, but they're just sitting right next to each other in this very mannered way, like in the center of the couch. I know exactly. Right what you're next to each about. other. Yeah. And it's it just uh, it shows you their relationship, and uh, without telling you, you know, you're like, oh, these two are close, mm-hmm. and they're very similar. And they like have an actual concern about the situation. You know, they're like trying to like ponder or not ponder they're trying to like uh inquire more about the situation like oh are you gonna be okay like are you gonna come live with us like whatever she's like are we gonna he's like we're gonna go visit my my grand my mother's grave your guys's grandmother blah 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 and then you have Chaz going to jeff's point who's the kind of the, the thorn in the siblings right in the background just flipping through a coffee book and as he gets angrier you hear the pages like flip like more violently and stuff until finally he just slams the book and like bails 
Yeah, I love that scene. There's another shot with Luke Wilson and Goopy Paltrow when they when she gets off the boat or he gets off the boat and she meets him and there's like a there's a uniformity happening behind them. Behind Luke Wilson you have all these guys in white costumes coming off the boat and that's juxtaposed with him in the foreground with his ridiculous costume. And then in the reverse shot, it has her. And there's also uniformity behind her in the form of buses with green. Mm-hmm. And so it's like them, it shows to, it showed to me like they're cut of a different cloth than the reality that surrounds them, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, this movie very, it does that a lot, I feel, where it kind of creates moments that shows how removed these characters are from the reality around them. I, I 100% agree. Oh, yeah, that, that yeah, makes perfect another sense. Another great shot is I, I just loved how when Owen Wilson is tackled by Ben Stiller after he runs into the house mm-hmm. with the car, they just end up in a meditation garden. Oh, I love that scene. Yeah, they're in a Zen garden. Yeah, that was, <laughs> zen yeah, that garden. Was, yeah, that was perfect. Yeah, because like he's going to get up again. Like He peeks over the wall. To like, because like he kind of has this angry look on his face, like he's gonna flip over the wall and start beating his ass again. And then he lands and sees where he is, and he's just kind of like, "Oh, like it almost he understands the <laughs> irony." They both are just like, "I need help," you know. And Chaz is like, "Yeah, me too." <laughs> and it's yeah. it's I don't know that whole wedding scene. I, I really like. There are a lot of those moments. It's like tying up, but I wanted to tie it to this the end of this movie and like the redemptive arc. You know, that kind of all of the characters go on at the end. It's like this ascension into like, okay, things are going to get a little better. Um, it reminds me a lot of Boogie Nights. You know, there's that moment when Don Cheadle is in the donut store with blood all over his face, grabs the bag of money, and then every single character, you start this ascent and this like buildup where, you know, Roller Girl's going back to school and she stopped doing so much cocaine. And they're getting back to making porno films. And Don Cheadle has a store. And it's like... Such a great redemption arc. I mean, it is. It is. It's it is like... Hilarious. She just She starts doing less coke and they start making porno again. Well, hey, it got a little crazy there for a while in Boogie Nights. Where it was like it they forgot what they were doing. And with this one, it's it's kind of like the music and the tone of everything starts to get a little brighter because the film is kind of gray at the beginning and then the colors really start to pour in like Wes Anderson usually does. Um, yeah, the, that final shot where it pans mm-hmm. and it actually, it's an actual pan um, when, when the camera uh, uh, hands across the fire truck and all of the characters exactly. are there kind of like interacting with the fire truck and it's these characters interacting with the calamity that they cause mm-hmm. uh in such a smooth way it, it just it makes a lot of sense and, and and it kind of represents the whole theme of the movie right there how he like puts on the hat and he's like what what and he's like you look funny yeah like, it's just like this yeah. whole kind of like cute little wrap up to everything it's like a, is dudley supposed to be um uh, bill murray's son no Dead, um, he's just like one of his patients. Yeah, Bill Murray is like this, like he's like an anthropologist or something. He like no, he's a he's like a psychologist. Yeah, but like he went like and studied both, a tribe yeah. for a little, oh, and his yeah. new project now is this guy Dudley, who he thinks is like has like a a yet to be determined psychological disability of some type. Oh, okay. yeah. That's why he's like when they he's like trying to find the he's like trying to like discover autism or yeah, something like that. Exactly. Yeah, it's like discovering and outlining a new form of autism. I mean, Bill Murray's like, great. That's that's what I took from like, it. Like when he's doing yeah, the little yeah. block thing, and Bill Murray's like writing his notes down, and he goes like he just laughs to himself. He's like fascinating, and it's just so like I don't know this film. Bill Murray is best sprinkled in a movie. He fits the Wes Anderson tone so perfectly as well. That's why he's in like every one of his oh, movies. Yeah, yeah. Then he's laying on the couch and he's just like in just the utter agony because like you feel bad for him because you can tell he like genuinely loves Gwyneth Paltrow's character. Like, uh, like he genuinely like finds her interesting and 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 he's just his whole life's coming apart. And Dudley's just like, you want to like play any word games or do any experiments on me <laughs> experiment on me <laughs> and he's just like no like it's just and you can see like the sorrow 
and the way he departs is just so great. He's like, let me get a cigarette. Oh, that was perfect. You don't smoke. And he just like lights it up and it like does a reverse shot and you can clearly see the no smoking symbol <laughs> and the fire extinguisher <laughs> like perfectly sandwiched in between the other two characters. Uh, and then he just like stands up. Au revoir. Yeah. And just leaves. <laughs> it was like such a Bill Murray exit. Uh, Bill Murray and Wes Anderson is a match made in heaven. The absolute driest comedy you can conjure on screen. I mean, I loved that moment. That was another redemptive moment, I feel like, for his character, because it was like, finally, his spine grew. In the waiting room of his brother-in-law's suicide attempt, he's like, you know what? Fuck you. Like, I'm going to out you about, like, in front of your mother. He's bawling. She's been bawling Eli Cash. (laughs) and he's just yeah, like yeah he just like he puts her on blast yeah and then he gets up and he just bails and i'm like okay finally because before he's like such a milk toast you know and it's like they really cranked yeah. the misery up with that whole situation i think that wes anderson did like a really good job i love like the character that locks herself into a bathroom and whatnot and that little scene of like having your wife locked in the bathroom chain smoking all day with a TV in there, that's like the only information you need to then deduce and like pull out that their relationship is just trash. And I think that Wes Anderson does that very well with the whole show, not tell thing. Oh, he's an amazing visual storyteller for sure. Just in your, in the frame, like in a frame, you'll have all the information Mm -hmm. you need. Exactly. No action is necessarily needed. I think it's a good point to like highlight the significance of the suicide scene. Okay. Yeah. Because that's probably yeah. a very like significant switch that the movie flips. Oh, that. I was not prepared for how dark this movie. Really? Got. And it's, yeah, it's pretty unexpected and it sets the tone for the film in a way that you're, you just said, Alex of like how for the rest of the film until the wedding, it's very dour mm-hmm. and it kind of like strips away a lot of the color and a lot of like the, the whimsical aspect of these miserable characters instead it's like oh wow everyone is like hitting rock bottom right now like it's like and like just the way he's like they figure out about her kind of long string of lovers Margot's character uh Gwyneth Paltrow's character um, over just her whole life mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting and then it kind of hard cuts to just him in the bathroom and he's just looking in the mirror and he's just like I'm gonna kill myself and then just does it yeah and it's just like, whoa. Like, it was just very, like, super real and very, very, like, jarring. And then it's a, quite a graphic scene. Yeah, it is. They don't they don't pull the punches on that one. Like, Dudley comes in and finds Luke Wilson's character on the ground, Richie, just, like, bleeding out. Yeah. Did you find, uh, did you find this, this tonal shift and, like, narrative shift to be any, like, to be problematic at all in your experience, Jeff? Because to me, I feel like the second half of the movie is, it falls apart a little bit. It's not as tightly constructed. But I also think that like the other side of me thinks that that's totally on purpose. And it also works because that's about the characters finally falling apart as well. Hmm. It's hard to say. I don't think it was to the movie's detriment at all. I think Wes Anderson was just trying to like... I don't know, I, I, I very much kind of felt like he had a, a clear tone and intention throughout the whole movie, and this was just one step in that equation. Like, he was like, okay, cool, like, this is fun and funny, kind of, and all these characters are whimsical, but actually, this is the actual consequence of trauma and how the, this stuff manifests in people. And it takes a very, like, real turn that kind of makes your mouth go dry for a minute, and you go, oh, oh, wow. That's, uh, that's really really sad and and so you kind of start to carry on all these characters figure it out and and then he's like very despondent when they're talking to him in the bed you know and like trying to like when they're gauging like how he's better Mm -hmm. he's kind of just like yeah whatever you know okay like he's still just as quiet and just as so it's like nothing's really changed and then even margo asks him like are you gonna do it again and he's like i doubt it like it's not really an answer it's not a yes or no definitive answer, yeah. which is not what you want to hear from someone who just had a suicide attempt. Right. So um, it's, it's, it's all very real. I actually, like, I get exactly what you're saying, Jesse. And that's why I think I 
like this movie so much and it, I call it the tightest of his films when it comes to the plot because I feel like it gets a little wiggly there towards the end. How do I say this? It's it's like the perfect moment for that and then it ends at the perfect time. And I think the length of this film is really, really good for it. I think it ends at the perfect time because I don't know. I feel like if it went on for a little too long in that kind of really dourness it would get kind of uncomfortable yeah so i think it just goes on just long enough and then just ends just at the right time um because it's pretty quick after the suicide attempt that the movie starts to wrap itself up yeah i think it went in a different direction than i was expecting when the whole gene hackman storyline with him in the house gets basically turned out mm-hmm. you know he gets found out by danny glover oh, yeah. and gets kicked out and i was like oh this is not going in like the way that i thought it would go i'm not saying that's a bad thing at all i think actually it's it made it more interesting uh overall because it's not just like the way that you expect it to work out yeah totally no they 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 subvert your expectations. No, <laughs> uh, they, yeah no when it, when it was revealed halfway through like his whole pl- like his whole ploy is revealed by danny glover and then like it, i kind of remember like going down to the time and be like oh about halfway in the movie here um okay i guess there's another plot that's gonna happen yeah, yeah pulled the rug out from under you yeah and there definitely was and it was cool though because you got to see him get his comeuppance for such a horrible like scheme and you get to see everyone kind of have their own reaction it's not just like oh he's found out and he's the bad guy end of movie yeah it's it's much more deep than that. It's like, well, like he didn't even realize what he was doing. He didn't even realize that what he was grasping for was trying to just like rebuild his family. Yeah, and I think that that is like the most beautiful thing about Royal and this story. Honestly, I think that Royal is just. If I'm going to give props to Wes Anderson for this film for its writing, it's mostly going to be to writing the character of Royal. And obviously Gene Hackman informed that a lot too and, and helped make him come alive, you know? It's just, I've known so many men like Royal, fathers, uncles, you know, male figures, that it just, they painted the picture so well. You know, he's neither bad nor good. It's like, you feel bad for him, almost. Like, I don't know. How pathetic, how pathetic do you have to be to not be able to just be able to reach out to your children, right? Like, that's sad. Yeah. They're the storybook characters that are also incredibly real people. It's an interesting balance that he's created. So, Alex, now that you've seen this 51 times or whatever, um, what do the mice symbolize? I missed (laughs) the first time I watched it. I missed the explanation that it was uh, Chaz's mice. And so I was like, I was just giggling at these shots. Like someone will walk into the house, but it'll be a shot from just their shoes and the little mouse is walking around. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what's going on? And I was giggling and I didn't know what the hell. And the second time I understood the context of it, but I don't know. Is that just Wes Anderson whimsy? Okay. So there are a few theories you could look at. You could definitely like write a literary essay about Dalmatian mice and what they symbolize in this film. And especially like in relation to Chaz, but Wes Anderson does this a lot where he uses inanimate, not inanimate, excuse me, set objects and random props throughout the film that tell a story in themselves of characters like the Javelina, for instance, right? Royal notices that it's not up in its usual spot. And he's like, where did it go? And he finds it stuffed away in a closet, right? That little interaction isn't a lot, but it tells you something about the way the family feels about Royal, the way he feels about his own personal mythos, and then his <laughs> disappointment, but also happiness in finding it in the board game closet, you know, like oh, stuffed away. I love that board game closet yeah. with its symmetrical framing and how they just have an argument in there. Yeah, then you see like Clue and like Operation and shit in the background. That's on my list of favorite shots as well. But one more thing about this movie that I wanted to say that is probably true of all of Wes Anderson movies is the soundtrack is also a big part, I think, more so than other films. I think the soundtrack helps like inform stuff a lot. Um, it's almost like it's a movie. <laughs> 
Yeah, but in a certain way, I, I don't know if we've talked about like procuring a soundtrack as much. No, that's something I very I know very little about actually. You know, like uh, Shaun of the Dead has a great soundtrack of not original like music score music right it's like a track list of a bunch of different artists in there um this movie wes anderson i think is a master of choosing songs from like pop culture like real songs and then blending it with original composer music and i just Mm. think that it makes his movies so successful i mean the darjeeling limited is chock full of the rolling stones and the kinks but then also like indian sitar cinema music and then original like soundtrack music i don't know they're just so so vibrant i like the Shaun of the dead comparison because um simon peg geez resin brain uh, <laughs> simon peg um he's very much into music mm-hmm. uh, and like that's why they have that little scene in Shaun of the dead with like them playing the records yeah you know and it's electro. like the classic record cl- electro collections and stuff like he's very much into that shit uh, his first show Spaced had a lot of that. So I, I, it's a good thing to bring up. And I just, in this movie, I would say that the soundtrack didn't really hit me at all. Like I didn't find it added or took away from the movie at all. Okay. So it's kind of interesting that you said that because it's one of those things that I just didn't even pay attention to. It was so much, these characters were so live and vivid that I, it kind of took away from any other types of, so you know critique except for the fact that he likes a wide angle lens yeah i was sort of aware of it but not as much as i would be after 50 watches that's for goddamn sure so i feel like if you guys especially for jeff i mean if you watch quentin tarantino his soundtrack procurement is fucking amazing right like pulp fiction reservoir dogs all all of his movies even kill bill all those movies are have great music but there's like a certain how do I say this? Like when you watch Quentin Tarantino's films, you can imagine him driving in his car and the song comes up on shuffle on his fucking phone or whatever, you know? And he's like, huh, yeah. I'm going to write a scene to this. And right. that happens with Guy Ritchie, you know, snatch lock stock. Mm-hmm. There are songs yeah. that make the scene so much better, like dusty Springfield, some of the yeah. old James Brown and shit like that. And you're like, wow, this is like your style. Like you like putting this type of music I see what you're saying. Yeah. in your films. If you watch other Wes Anderson movies, it's fucking full of it too. Life Aquatic oh, yeah. is like David Bowie. Rushmore is full of that, of like old who songs. This has Velvet Underground, Rolling Stones, you know? It gets into, mm-hmm. like, a lot of classic rock stuff. He has his voice, man, and his voice is definitely a part of that, like, integrating pop culture elements. I like the idea of him listening to a song in the car and being like, I'm going to write a scene to this. Yeah. I can totally see that. And it yeah, is, for sure. It is also very Tarantino-ish, for sure. Yeah, Wes Anderson, like I said before, he's in command. He knows what he wants. He knows what he's doing. It's definitely not to everybody's tastes, but you know what? That's okay. Like I had a I had a professor who once said, "You don't have to like something, but you should be able to recognize that it's well made." And this is really well made. Mm-hmm. I think that it's to me, and maybe this would change in subsequent watches. It's a movie I'll definitely watch again, but. In a similar way that I think Terrence Malick was developing his voice as an artist in The Thin Red Line, I think this is Wes Anderson developing his voice as a different kind of artist, different kind of poet, for sure. Oh, definitely. Um, and I think it I think it fires on all cylinders for me better in his later films, but I definitely think this is a great movie with a lot to tease out of both emotionally visually there's so much going on visually that you could just pause it and giggle (laughs) and uh yeah i think it's a it's a great movie i'm glad i finally watched it me too (laughs) (laughs) all right you guys uh anything else to say before we wrap this one up um don't watch the new mortal Kombat movie oh shit (laughs) yeah no it sucks yeah it's like written by a (laughs) four-year-old it's terrible it's pretty terrible it's pretty terrible All right, Real Weirdos, signing off. We'll be back next week with A Scanner Darkly, and we'll see you all next time.
Now our podcast is done, and we have to run. We know it is sad, but we had so much fun. Don't be bereft, Jesse, Alex, and Jeff. We'll be back real soon. The real weirdos. We talk about movies for way too goddamn long. Boo, 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 boo.